Can you hear me now? All right. Sorry about that. Well, this has been a a very packed conference, and thank you for your resilience and patience and hanging in there. And and we have uh, one more hour to think about the Great Commission and how it connects with the Genesis Mandate. And, of course, in the midst of all this, we have been aware of movements of people in other parts of the world, Ukraine in particular, and then where they're going from there. And I can't help but think about that as we're praying for all the people who are affected by that, that I was very much affected uh, as a teenager by the youth pastor who taught me the Bible and how his family were refugees to America shortly after World War II. They had been living in Yugoslavia. They were ethnic Germans, speaking German in the, in the family, and they were, uh, theologically, they were Anabaptists, and not just, it was a very special group, a very small group of a specific kind of Anabaptist denomination, uh, so much so that there was uh, one church that met in one town, and then the next uh, closest denomination, the next closest congregation of the same denomination, you had to get on a train and ride for a while and get off there and then get on a different train and ride somewhere else. So um, this is just to uh, be, be, give you one more illustration of be amazed at how God works out the details. So there was a young man named Webble who wanted, who decided he was at the age where he needed to find a wife. And life was hard in Yugoslavia and he wanted to marry within his faith. And so he and another friend of his had kind of thought about who was available in their particular congregation, and they decided they needed to go visit another congregation. <laughs> and so they decided to take a train trip together, and so they rode on the train and then got off at one spot and rode on another train and got to this other town that had another German-speaking Anabaptist congregation that matched their specific uh, brand, and they attended there, and both of them with the idea that they were going to look for a potential wife. And this fellow named Webel, he in particular, <clears throat> got to thinking about how hard life was, and m- many of the people worked uh, in in farms at that time. And so he thinking about how harsh life could be. He wanted a wife who could sing well because if he had a wife who was good at singing, then there would be song in the house and that would help cheer up everybody in the family from hard days on the farm. So that was his priority. He wanted to marry within his faith and he wanted a wife who had a good singing voice. And so this was literally a case of love at first sound. And so he and his friend attended that church, and they listened, and uh, he decided he knew just the right one. He was going to propose to her. He hasn't had a conversation with her yet, but he's heard her sing. And so they both left at the end of that worship service, got on their train, rode back, got off there, then got on the next train and went back to their particular village. And this fellow named Webble said to the leaders of his church, I would like to present a proposal of marriage to so-and-so, 
And so uh, an intermediary took that written proposal of marriage to the leadership of the other church, and the other church approached the uh, parents, and I would hope the girl herself, uh, (laughs) with this proposal that this guy from another town who heard this girl sing would like to marry her. And so uh, she agreed. So she accepted the marriage proposal, never having had a face-to-face conversation with her future husband, who is to share her life with her thereafter and to build a family thereafter, of course, with a lot of good Christian song. In and so the first time when they actually met face-to-face, which, of course, was another double train trip, was at a time when she was cleaning houses where her job was, but the people who lived in her house that she worked for would be away from the house for a little while, long enough for at least a good half hour, maybe as an hour conversation, for them to plan the marriage uh, uh, formalities. And so after two trips on the train, uh, this uh, young Webble visited um, his future wife, who now was his fiance, and they had their first conversation to plan how they're going to... They decided what they'd do would be they'd... Um, meet, uh, they would go to church together on Sunday at her church, and then immediately following that church service, they would have a marriage ceremony. And then she would go on the train with him back to his father's house, and that's where they would start out uh, living in a certain part of his father's house, and the next day, that is the day after the honeymoon, would be working in the fields, working in the farm fields. Uh, that's not the, you know, that's not the way that American worldly tradition is about how you, you know, start off married life. But that marriage had to stand the test of many trials throughout World War II uh, because that's what was going to happen to that couple, and they were going to have um, 11 children, one of whom would die as a baby during World War II before they escaped the Nazis. And uh, that's a whole other story, and we don't have time for that tonight. But suffice it to say, they did survive as a family by God's grace through World War II. And then when Yugoslavia was going communist, they realized if we're going to get out, we have to get out now. They did. They got on, uh, uh, they traveled on, uh, they had lots of travel adventures. I'll leave it at that. So some of it involved a horse-pulled wagon, some of it was uh, on a boat, some of it involved trains. Anyway, they had a lot of adventures just sticking together as a family and eventually ended up in Austria. And from there, were able to, after one of the children got lost and got retreat, they all matched up. Uh, Anyway, God kept the family together, although there were many adventures in that process. And they got permission to come to America as German-speaking, German ethnic people who were not particularly appreciated in America right after World War II. And they knew the, uh, they knew the, um, uh, about four different languages when they lived in Yugoslavia. They, they knew German, of course, that's what they spoke in the home. They would have known uh, whatever language was spoken, uh, spoken by the, the Serbs and, and the Croats. And they knew some French. And, but they didn't know English, and they were all going to go to this brand new land whose language they didn't know. And so how are they going to learn English? Well, they got a English King James Bible, 
and they had their German Bible. And so anytime they wanted to know what a word was in English, they'd think of a verse that had that word in it, look it up in their... Uh, they say, okay, in our, in our German Bible, this is the word, that's what I want to say. Now I've got to find that same chapter and verse in the English Bible. And that's a, so they used the King James English Bible to learn the English language. And later when they were interviewed about their adventures as refugees fleeing the communists... That they would be asked questions by one of their children, and they would answer in King James English. Oh, he goeth over to the pasture, and he unlocketh the gates for the cows. Uh, Notwithstanding, uh, anyway, it was very entertaining to read, and it's it's uh, it's online and it's in a, a published journal, uh, a history journal. But anyway, all of which is to say. God has been moving people, often through very adverse circumstances, for many generations, and yet he has been demonstrating himself to be their shepherd and their God during this time. So we will think about how many people went west in earlier generations of America, and in the process they were filling the earth, which is part of the Genesis mandate. They were being fruitful and they were multiplying, but they're also filling the earth And we're focusing on the geographical side of that. And at the same time, the gospel was being spread. So we'll think about that. We're reminded that we all start from Adam's uh, family. And then from there, uh, God puts us where he wants us to be. Well, Paul experienced that. And you all know this, so I can go through this quickly. But he, in effect, was told by the Holy Spirit, go west, young man. uh, Because... When they had gone throughout Phrygia and the region of Galatia and were forbidden of the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia, that is the the Roman province that was then called Asia, what we today call Asia Minor, which is mostly Turkey. After they were come to Mysia, they essayed to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit allowed them not. So they were forbidden to speak toward the east, which was... uh, Culturally, at that time, the more civilized area of the Roman Empire was the eastern side. The western side of the Roman Empire at that time was the wilder side of the Roman Empire. It was less civilized. You had all these uh, Germanic tribes and and anyway. So you can imagine that Paul uh, would have expected to go east because that's where you'd have a more civilized opportunity to share the gospel. But God was going to push them west into Europe. So they passed by Mysia and they came to Troas. Now he's given two red lights. Do not go here. Do not go here. And he's trusting God to direct his path with his team. And yet at this point he hadn't even been told where he's going to go next. Um, God does that sometimes. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. There stood a man of Macedonia and pleaded to him, saying, Come over into Macedonia and help us. And after he had seen the vision, immediately we endeavored, we. So now Luke is part of what's going on. Because before it was they. And yet in verse 10 you see the the switch there. After he, that is Paul, had seen the vision, immediately we. Somehow Luke has just joined the team. Endeavored to go into Macedonia, assuredly gathering that the Lord had called us for to preach the gospel unto them. Therefore, loosing from Troas, we came with a straight course to Samothracia and the next day to Neapolis. And from there to Philippi, 
which is the chief city of that part of Macedonia and a Roman colony, and we were in that city abiding certain days. So God has just directed Paul and his team to go west to a place he didn't expect to go to. And we see uh, things like that happening not just in biblical history but also uh, thereafter. And we see in the Old and New Testament lots of adventures where God is the one directing someone to go to a new place that they're not used to. We've had the same thing in America. We've had many who have settled the western territories and going into those western territories were missionaries and church planters and Bible teachers who served in a lot of different contexts. And some of them are well documented and some of them are not well documented at all. And we'll learn about them in glory. There were some very colorful adventurers. I wish we had the time to talk about the Abernathys, uh, which would include Catch Him Alive, Jack Abernathy, uh, and his two sons. Um, but we don't have time for that. That's uh, maybe another day. Uh, anyway, there were many very adventurous people who lived their lives in what was a not-so-civilized west of America during the uh, years and the generations of settlement. And many of, this, many of these years would be the 1800s. And then we had Baptists in Texas, especially after 1834. Um, as what Texas started out with the Catholic Church as the established religion until March of 1834. Uh, and you had examples of ministers who came from different parts of America, typically from the East Coast, who decided that they were going to be evangelists and church planters in this wild territory called Texas. Uh, one was a North Carolinian Baptist who was reared in Kentucky, and he was preaching regularly in Texas. He was arrested for preaching in Texas. He escaped to San Antonio. And you had others who were preaching in other parts of Texas. Um, some of these names you might recognize. Maybe you recognize none of the names. But you had um, different Baptist congregations that were established during the 1800s in different parts of Texas. And some of this documentation uh, you can actually find online <clears throat> Uh, at the website of the Texas State Historical Association. Uh, one one fellow in particular, a very colorful character, Frank Kiefer, I'm guessing at the pronunciation, he was a Prussian-born ex-Catholic who served as a Baptist pastor, evangelist, and physician. And so you might say in many cases he had a captive audience. You know, he'd be treating somebody's very serious wound who they uh, could you know bleed to death if he didn't give them the right kind of help. And while he was helping their physical needs, he was giving them the gospel, um, the middle of the 1800s. One of those who came to this wild place called Texas was Reverend James Abernathy. And he came as a Baptist from uh, a line of North, Car North Carolinian Abernathys to Texas, to the east part of Texas. Uh, one of his descendants is sitting in the back of the room. Anyway, he was a Baptist minister, and he uh, married Janie Witherspoon, and her brother was a Baptist minister, and the, the two the, the two brothers-in-law stayed in communication, and eventually uh, they, they all lived in the same part of East Texas 
and uh, that was the gravestone there. And um, I see that when I originally did this PowerPoint slide, my mother-in-law was three months shy of turning 106. As it turned out, she missed 106 by just a few days, uh, so she's in, in glory now. But uh, there were many very strong people who came to Texas in those days. Uh, my mother-in-law, uh, in her 90s, killed a snake in the middle of the night. It got into the house. And uh, that's the kind of tough people that God was using in Texas. Well, uh, we look at Acts 1-8, and, and we expect that there will be movement as the gospel is going out. You shall receive power after that the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the outermost part of the earth. So um, for the limited time that we have tonight, I'm going to focus on mostly three examples. And one that I'm going to spend a little more time on than the others is this Presbyterian. I mean, after all, with all of the Presbyterian heritage of, of uh, Chafer uh, and, and the institutions he's associated with, uh, we need to appreciate God working through the Presbyterians in bringing the gospel to the West. Now, he was an evangelist and a church planner and a missionary all at the same time, and his, his ministry career involved direct ministry in Oklahoma, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Iowa, Nebraska, Dakota, which has since split into two, Idaho, Montana, Wyoming, Utah, Colorado, New Mexico, Arizona, Texas, and, as we'll learn later, Alaska. In fact, the picture there of Sheldon Jackson College, that's actually in Alaska. Uh, but uh, the main source for, for a lot of this information is Winning the West for Christ, uh, by Norman, looks like, Bender, something like that. A little too hard to read the fonts. Okay, uh, at the beginning of his uh, mission career, Dr. Sheldon Jackson went to the West and was a missionary to the Choctaw Indians of Oklahoma. And so he served there for a while, and that was before Oklahoma was state. Then America, in 1848 agreed to the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, and that ended the Mexican-American War, added another half million square miles to the United States, including parts of Arizona, California, Colorado, Nevada, New Mexico, Utah, and Wyoming. Plus, Mexico quit claimed some lands that already were in Texas, but they gave up their claim to those portions of what is part of today, Texas. So for the next uh, uh, 20 years later, he would plant churches and schools there to promote Christianity, specifically Presbyterian Christianity. And he was a big believer in Christian schools, that if you train up the children, that's going to make the difference in the long run. Well, as uh, from there, he went up to Minnesota. And he was for 10 years in Minnesota, although you know right on the edge of it and right near the Mississippi River. Uh, because, of course, transportation, think about transportation. They didn't have the interstate highway system back then, so you know, rivers were pretty important um, opportunities for transportation. So he was in Minnesota, he was in Wisconsin and Iowa, and he was tromping through the snow in blizzards to go um, lead uh, worship meetings and church planning meetings 
and stayed very busy and uh, uh, was very tough in that climate. And so 23 churches radiating hundreds of miles from his base along the Mississippi were planted by him. And where's my prop? Now we get to talk about the Union Pacific Railroad and what connection the Union Pacific Railroad had to the planting of Presbyterian churches. He had a simple idea to take advantage of the technology of his generation, and that was once the railroad system connected from the Pacific to you know, basically across the nation, but this this picture here shows you the connection from Omaha, Nebraska, to California. Once that transcontinental railroad was established, his goal was to, to plant one local church a day. And his, his approach was he would get on the train and he'd ride it to the next stop. He'd get off at that stop He'd go to the center of town, whatever looked like the most important intersection, and he would start preaching in a loud voice. And he would attract a crowd. And, uh, you know, people would just, you know, turn off their cell phones and... Oh, no, that's right. They didn't have cell phones. So just the fact that there's some guy yelling on a street corner was enough to attract a crowd back then. And so he would would, uh, give a sermon and attract some people. And then he'd say, now, any of you who want to start a church, when I'm finished preaching... Stay around, and we'll have a little planning session, and we'll plan uh, to uh, plan a church. So at the end of his preaching, there'd be maybe four or five people who would come up there and, and visit with him, and he'd say, okay, let's, let's work it out. Let's start a church here. And the next time I come through here, um, if, you, if you all are organized sufficiently for that, I'll draw up the paperwork, I'll send it back east, and we'll get you linked in with uh, my Presbyterian organization. So then he would get back on the next train and head to the next stop and do the same thing. That was his goal. It took him a long time. But it was a, it was a simple goal, but it was a winning strategy. And so his street preaching led to a new church in Cheyenne, Wyoming. And uh, that's described on, you know, how all the details of that are described on pages 16, 17 of, of Norman Bender's book, Winning the West for Christ. So he used the trans transcontinental railroad and god in his providence caused somebody within the railroad company to give him a all-you-can-eat pass i mean basically gave him some kind of a badge or some kind of paperwork that said you can ride the train the trains any day anytime as much as you want you never have to pay a dime so for basically he had a a life pass i mean it's kind of like some of these uh, pilots and flight attendants when they retire. You know, they get to ride the planes for free. Uh, and so that's that really reduced his expenses. So there he was. He was riding the Transcontinental Railroad in the 1860s. So here is a map showing all the different places where he would, the train would have a stop, he would get off, and he would plant a church. So you can see this starts in Omaha, Nebraska, and it heads west and then it comes into the Wyoming Territory, and then it eventually uh, goes into Utah, and then it falls off the, the map here. But there's a lot of stops along the way, and his goal was to, to start a Presbyterian church in every one of those using the same approach, street preaching, 
Those of you who want to start a church, let's get together after I'm done preaching and let's plan it out. But he also wanted to visit people who were mining for gold in the mining fields. So he also spent some time up in Montana in 1869, and he would meet with many of the those who were painting for gold. Um, so in Nebraska, uh, some of his churches that were started included Grand Island, Columbus, Fremont, and then he went to uh, Colorado and, and Wyoming. He went to uh, Colorado, uh, for example, Fair Play Presbyterian Church, which you see in the picture there. Sheldon Jackson was the one who organized that church and planted it in the autumn of 1869. And the details are covered on pages 25 through 28 of that book. Um, in Denver, he would uh, lead worship services for the gold miners and the, and the saloon keepers. And so he would have them singing, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. Of course, they were hoping that uh, those founts might involve a little bit of gold blessing. <laughs> uh, in Colorado, he also established uh, uh, churches in Denver, Pueblo, Colorado Springs. In the case of Colorado Springs, the church he planted there was in 1872. Obviously, Colorado Springs looks a lot different today than it did when he planted a church there. And I have it on good authority that when he planted the church in Colorado Springs, there was no focus on the family there. Uh, Colorado City, Golden City, etc. Here is a photo of the Pioneer Church of La Junta, uh, Colorado. Uh, The first meeting was in railroad coach cars. And they established the church in October of 1881, uh, nine miles away from Bent's old fort pictured there. Of course, that was important because if you had soldiers who were stationed at a military fort, then they could be part of the congregation. That might even add a little extra security to the congregation. He went to Utah knowing full well that that was dominated by Mormons. And so he went to Corin and Salt Lake City and decided, we're going to plant Presbyterian churches here. How's that going to go over? One of the things he noticed was that the the Mormons did not have their own uh, schools for their children. So he rounded up enough non-Mormons who were uh, believers, that is Christians, and started a school for the children. And so the Mormon children... uh, If you look at the bottom uh, picture, you see a graduation photo, October 12 of 1906. Those were children who who attended the Christian school that Sheldon Jackson uh, established with his his, uh, colleagues. And so they were able to provide a Christian witness to the next generation of those two Mormon cities. All right, let me read to you a little bit about him from the Utah History Encyclopedia. The first Presbyterian congregation in Utah was organized in Corin. A pastor arrived to begin work in June of 1896. Uh, That should be, uh, this is what the encyclopedia article says, 1896. It should have said 1869. Uh, Typo. Just one month after the Golden Spike was driven on nearby Promontory Point. The going wasn't easy early on, but the Corin congregation was finally officially organized July 14, 1870, under the leadership of Reverend Edward Bayless and the Presbyterians had a toehold in Utah. 
A second congregation followed in Salt Lake City in the fall of 1871 when the first Presbyterian church was officially organized on 12 November under the leadership of Reverend Josiah Welch. Third congregation was established in the rip-roaring mining town of Alta in the summer of 1873 with Reverend Shell as pastor. A school for the children of the town was opened that fall in the new church building. These new Presbyterian congregations were a result of the expansive vision, sturdy faith, and seemingly inexhaustible energy of Dr. Sheldon Jackson, superintendent of missions for Iowa, Nebraska, Dakota, Montana, Wyoming, Colorado, and Utah. He was appointed to that position less than a month before the completion of the Transcontinental Railroad in 1869. Jackson was a man of action, and in his first year of work, he traveled 22,690 miles by railroad, stagecoach, horseback, and on foot, and Presbyterian congregations were established in many parts of the American West. The education strategy of the Presbyterians was being simultaneously implemented in Salt Lake City. Professor Coiner arrived to establish a school in the facilities of the First Presbyterian Church. It opened 12 April 1875, with 63 pupils, and it was called the Salt Lake Collegiate Institute. However, Presbyterian Church denominational policies hindered the development of more schools by restricting the flow of mission monies from women's missionary societies and by refusing to allow the appointment of single women as missionary teachers. I'm not sure you know, what was going on there, but anyway, that made a difference. Jackson and the Presbyterian Presbytery of Utah eventually successfully petitioned the General Assembly for a policy change. As a result, money and teachers became more available. Um, If you read the biography of Sheldon Jackson, you'll find that he was constantly hampered by people in the bureaucracy of his denomination who who had no uh, on-the-field experience. They really didn't know what was going on or what the challenges were, and yet they were controlling the money flow and often um, uh, being more harm than good to what Jackson was trying to do. Well, then he moved west to New Mexico, Arizona, and Texas and often established schools there for the children, uh, many of them being uh, you know, Native American Indian children. And then he went to the west, that is farther north, namely the Great Land, or in other words, Alaska, We'll come, back, we'll come back to that a little bit later. So we're going to leave Dr. Sheldon Jackson uh, on that note, and we're going to talk about some other folks. The Wendish Lutherans went west. Uh, Jan Killian was the leader of the Wendish Lutherans who came from uh, the land that is now part Germany and part Poland. Uh, there's an area called Lusatia, uh, Anyway, there isn't a separate country there now, but they had their own language. Uh, Wendish is a Slavic language, like Polish, but they were Lutherans. And they, uh, at one point, decided to come to America to have more religious freedom. And so they came, and in the hill country of America, there's there's still a settlement there that uh, celebrates their heritage and their pioneer history um, every year with a festival, they were connected to with what became what became part of the Missouri Synod uh, Lutherans. And Killian was a musician. He also apparently was pre-mill, and got into a little bit of trouble with the uh, 
denominational hierarchy about some of his writings uh, on eschatology. So he, he just kind of pulled back from that and decided, well, I better just focus on keeping my congregation together. But it's interesting. Uh, he, he was very, very intelligent man and, and very, uh, like I say, very good in music and also cared a lot about theology. He wasn't just, you know, some kind of a church builder type, you know, church growth. <laughs> I mean, he really cared about what God said in the Bible and thinking the big picture of what will happen in the future. All right, so here's a little uh, information on the winds. In December of 1854, an English sailing vessel, the Ben Nevis, docked in Galveston Harbor, loaded with some 500 immigrants from Lusatia, an area in Germany comprising parts of Saxony and Prussia. These immigrants were not the typical lot of German, Swedes, Czechs, and Poles who flocked to Texas in the 1850s, seeking cheap land and economic opportunity. This group was different, speaking the Wendish language. And even more striking, these Slavic pioneers who were to settle in Lee County made the journey from their homeland, not in search for prosperity, but rather in search of religious liberty and the right to speak their Wendish tongue. And their church, you know, originally had worship service in Wendish. The Wends were descended from a group of Slavic tri- tribes, and uh, let me. Uh, then it gives a little bit of ge- geographic information. Uh, the oppression of the Wendish minority extended to working conditions, when, with Wends being denied the right to do the skilled labor for which they were trained. If they were hired at all, they received less pay than their German counterparts. Prussian agrarian uh, reform laws of 1832 made matters worse, and so they decided they'd come to the New World. Um, one of the things that Pastor Jan Killian did was translate from German into Wendish many books, including Luther's Large Catechism and the Augsburg Confession. He wrote Wendish prayer books, sermons, and tracts, as well as hymns and poems. And uh, the last time I, uh, Sherry and I visited their uh, church out there in the hill country, they, would, they had an English worship service, but they would... Uh, uh, they would pronounce John 3:16 in Wendish, so they're they're still using at least a little, at least a very important part of the Wendish language. Here's the inside of their church. If you were to go to visit there today, and they are a very reverent people. In fact, I remember one little boy was sitting in the balcony and he had his hat on, and an usher came up and helped him to understand that you don't wear a hat if you're a male inside a formal worship service. There's a picture of their museum. And now we, make, now we move on to a different uh, group of pioneers, Kling Pearson and the Hoggian Lutherans who came to Texas. Uh, Kling Pearson is, is called the father of uh, Norwegian immigration to America for a reason. He was responsible for leading more Norwegians to come to America than, than any other person did. And many of those that came with him were a group of pietist Lutherans called the Hoggians. Um, they, they were not hung up on ritual. They wanted to have uh, personal Bible study and hymn singing in homes and prayer meetings. And some of the established church Lutherans in Norway were against that and gave them a hard time. And so many of them decided, let's go to America where there's more freedom. And Kling Pearson uh, led many of them there. Um, there, I don't think there's strong, any real proof that he himself was a Hoggian Lutheran, although he certainly was a friend to them in many ways. And if you go to uh, Bosque County, Texas, you'll you'll uh, this is where he actually lived when he was there. 
Uh, here's a, a better, a bigger picture of where Kling Pearson lived in Bosque County, uh, not far from Clifton. And you see a, a Norwegian stamp there that shows Kling Pearson. So they, they respect him for what he did. They respect him in Norway. And then also the other in, inserted photo there is a picture of him that is in the local museum, the Clifton uh, Museum, which gives a lot of history about him. Well, in 1848, Kling Pearson came from Illinois, and some uh, th- this is a some memories by Knud Olsen Hofstvet, rec- recollections of a Norwegian pioneer in Texas, um, and this is uh, courtesy of the Texas State Historical Association in, in Austin. So uh, Kling Pearson came from Illinois and stayed in Texas a while, then returned to Illinois and came again to Texas, bringing more people, of course, in 1850, bringing along a whole bundle of Bibles and New Testaments. I bought a copy of each on February 10, 1851. Pearson had got these in Illinois from the Bible Society, and much of the way, probably most of the 175 miles from Shreveport, Louisiana, he had to carry them on his back since he usually rode Shank's mare. He now stayed a long time with Johan Ryerson, then moved to Dallas County, where he lived with a Norwegian by the name of Nordbo. This man belonged to the same religious sect as Kling Pearson. The basis of their faith was... And then it gives you a little information on someone who is not theologically, um, obviously didn't go to Chafer Theological Seminary. I suppose it's unnecessary to remark that the teachings of this book harmonize poorly with Clang Pearson's zeal in providing us with Bibles and New Testaments. Um, but, uh, you know, in tough times, you, you accept help from whoever's available. The, uh, the above-mentioned Norbo immigrated originally uh, from... Norway, but came to Texas. And what you find is that some settled in Iowa, some settled in Minnesota, but some of them continued going farther south and ended up in in Texas. Okay, so skipping down to, we were without a minister while I was in Texas. We negotiated with Reverend Stubb about securing a Norwegian Lutheran minister from the north, but nothing came of it. People would usually gather on Sundays, and some person would then read a sermon from a devotional book for our edification. In this manner, our love and respect for the Lutheran Church were maintained. And this is the Ringness House where the, origi- where the first Lutheran worship service prayer meeting happened uh, in Bosque County. Um, so this was a private residence where they met until they eventually built a church. You can see the rose molding uh, art there on the wall. In fact, that's, that's not original to the settlers. That was painted by... Um, Mimi Fossum, the same spy that, teenage spy that I spoke about earlier. Here's a, another shot of the Ringness House. So if you ever happen to be in Bosque County, you want to see where the first Lutheran worship service took place, that's it. Obviously, it's it's been, you know, cared for, but uh, that's the original um, materials that the house was built from, you know, other than what's been repaired. If you were to go to Our Savior's Lutheran Church, there in Bosque County in the little town of Norse. They have one tombstone that has etched on it um, pictures of the original 17 settlers in that county, and that's in their uh, their cemetery there. So now we'll go back and, and join back up again with Sheldon Jackson as he goes to Alaska. 
And what he would do would be start, uh, he would start schools for the children. And that kept the children from uh, a lot of bad that would otherwise had happened to them. Uh, the children in those communities were often treated very badly, and I'll just leave it at that. And so by getting the children into these schools, they were protected, plus they were taught by Christian teachers uh, the truth from the Bible, and many of them became Christians as a result. So this is in uh, um, southeast Alaska. Uh, this would be near Haines, Alaska. Haines was probably where he spent more time than, than other places. used to be one of the stops that the cruise ships would stop at when they went on uh, the southeast Alaskan cruises. Now we'll mention three lucky Swedes because there was a gold rush in the 1890s in Alaska, which drew a lot of people there. And three, and most of the people who went there didn't get rich. I, no surprise on that. Lots of people went there. Most of them dug their, dug their best uh, for gold but didn't get it. And they panned and panned and dug and dug, and, and they didn't get rich. But a few did. And a few who got rich were immediately murdered by their neighbors who stole their gold. But three who not only got rich but who didn't get murdered were called the three lucky Swedes. And they also had a friend named Leonard Seppala, who I'll get to in a minute. So they, they, uh, they got their gold, if I remember right, from Nome was where they made it rich. Now, they're called the three lucky Swedes, but actually one of them was... Um, was Norwegian, but at that time, Norway owned Sweden. So if you were born in what is today Norway, you would be called a Swede. So all of them belonged to the same country at that time. And one of them, uh, when he got married, uh, had a picture taken, and so we know a little bit about him, and this is a photo from the Alaska State Library. One of the things that they did was one of them in particular decided to take an enormous amount of his wealth, uh, that is, he took an enormous amount of wealth from an even larger enormous amount of wealth, and he decided to establish a Siemens church off uh, in, Cal in California. And I'm going to guess it was San Francisco, but I don't know for sure, but I think that's where it was. But anyway, the idea was whenever these boats are coming in, from different parts of the world, and they're docking uh, to do trade in California, that if whoever was on that boat was from Sweden or Norway or Denmark, if there was a place where the sailors could go to where they would have free uh, bunk beds and free food and a place to go to, they'd be less likely to go to the bars and to other buildings of ill repute and get into trouble in the way that sailors often do when they're in port. This was to let's keep them away from those places. Let's get them into um, a seaman's uh, um, living quarters. And every Sunday morning, they would have worship services in the language that these guys were, these sailors were used to. There is the Siemens Kirken here in Houston which uh, Sherry and I have been to. It's a similar kind of thing. And it, uh, I don't know if this is still true, but it used to be the whole thing was paid for by, um, by the, the government of Norway. And one of the reasons was that it was a lot more economically useful for them to have sailors who didn't get into trouble when they were in port and didn't end up in jail or whatever uh, 
if they would just go to this Christian boarding place where they could have good food, not just good food, but it's actually the foods that they were used to. So it would be, the, it would be their ethnic foods. Anyway, it's a very special ministry to, uh, to sailors, and that was funded, and for many generations, I mean, this was originally funded in the, eight, in the well, it could have been is either the late 1800s or maybe more likely the very early 1900s, and the last time I checked, it's still functioning in California, um, and it may have had, you know, more money added to help make it happen uh, by, by uh, one of the European countries who supports the uh, Lutheran, Lutheran faith. So who were these three lucky Swedes? One was John Brentison, and he contributed to many charities in the United States. And um, uh, he was involved in the Swedish Mission Covenant. And then there was Eric Lindblom. Uh, he took his, his uh, gold from Nome, and he got involved in a, in a lot of different uh, business ventures. And then there was Yafet, that'd be the um, Scandinavian equivalent of Japheth, one of Noah's three sons, uh, who was born in northern Norway, but, of course, as I said, was part, considered part of Sweden then. And he was the most educated of three. He'd learned four other languages. He developed a reindeer herding operation to provide a ready source of food for people living there. We'll come back to that thought in a bit. Lindbergh quickly turned his attention to gold prospecting, and on his trip back to Norway in the early 1900s, he convinced a friend to come work for him in Alaska. That friend was Leonard Seppala, who became a well-known sled dog racer, husky breeder, and he was the one who provided the most help, that is, uh, was responsible for the most mileage covered at the most critical part of the serum race to Nome when the diphtheria epidemic was happening then and people were just dying like flies in 1925. And... um, he, uh, he raced across a, a part of the uh, sea, that is the ocean really, that was frozen by ice. And a few hours after he took that shortcut, it broke up. Uh, that's an amazing uh, piece of history to study one of these days if you are able to do that. And, of course, he was highly motivated. His daughter was in Nome. Now we move to a different part of the West, Oklahoma and Texas is where we'll start and learn a little something about Dale Crowley Sr. He was a Baptist pastor. He's pictured there in the black and white, uh, the book that says, From Oklahoma to the Nation's Capital. And you see one of those old-fashioned radio um, microphones there. That's because he got involved in the gospel radio ministry. So he was kind of like J. Vernon McGee. Uh, only not not as famous, and you know, but he didn't start out in the radio ministry. He started out um, going to Baylor, and while he was at Baylor, he got into controversy with the professors there because they were teaching evolution, and he disagreed with that. And he got into the local newspapers, and I think they. Uh, kicked him out of the school there for a while, and then there was a big hubbub, and then they allowed him to come back. Basically, if he agree to be quiet. Anyway, there was a lot of uh, controversy there for a while because he disagreed with evolution because he'd been taught that the Bible was true and that's the obvious disagreement there. 
So uh, he ended up uh, leaving that school and becoming a pastor and coming to um, uh, Texas and then to Arkansas. And he seemed to always have controversy around him. He opposed homosexuality, uh, which wasn't a big political movement back then, but it existed. And he also got into controversy because he was was very confrontational with those who taught false doctrines and tried to start cults and things like that. At one point, one group within his church tried to vote to oust him and to take over his church property, that is the church he was pastoring, and they lost the election, but they decided they'd come in and take over it anyway. And so then the sheriff had to get involved and uh, eventually tell those who who belonged to this uh, um, this, this kind of a cult that were trying to take over their property that they had to leave. That wasn't the end of it. And so one day when Pastor Dale Crowley Sr. was walking from his study to a different part of his church, he was walking with a, a man next to him who had a cane. And as he came into a hallway, you know, there's a hallway going this way and that way. As he came into the opening, he saw a guy there with a gun getting ready to shoot him. And the guy next to him with the cane kind of pulled him back. And so he got pulled out of the line of fire. And the guy who was shooting here shot the guy there who was trying to shoot him. They were both trying to shoot him. And because he ducked out of the way, the one guy killed the other guy. And, uh, I mean, you've heard of church fights. This is just Texas, except for this was Arkansas. Uh, Jonesboro, Arkansas. Well, anyway, so he survived that one. And God continued to um, bless the family. And he had a, a, a son who succeeded him in that radio ministry, which eventually ended up in the nation's capital. And it was when they were just starting post boxes um, for that part of town. And so his, his address was Post Box 1, Washington, D.C. And uh, so it was real easy for people who wanted to donate money to send him money. Well, his second son, now his, his first son was Dale. And... His name was Dale, so he was Dale Sr., and and his uh, firstborn son was Dale Jr. And so the parents called this firstborn son, 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 come here, blah, blah, blah. Well, then a secondborn son was born, and his name was Robert. So it was kind of awkward for Robert when his mother would call and say, son, come here, Robert, you come here too. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that, that just has a different ring to it. Well, anyway, um, I haven't yet mentioned, but you may have seen it on the screen, that the Crowleys are direct descendants from John and Priscilla Alden, who were Mayflower pilgrims. So that ties it back to our family history uh, lesson when we were talking about the history of the Mayflower pilgrims. So some of the progeny whose lives were at risk at that time were... Pastor Dale Crowley Sr., who was also a radio preacher, his son, son, uh, who would later take over his radio ministry, and then the second-born son, Robert Crowley, who would become pastor of what was then Montrose Baptist Church and also start Summit Lake Camp, a place where many teenagers got saved over the years, and then another uh, camp similar to it, uh, Middle Creek conference camp, or I forget what they call the exact name there. Oh, and did I mention that Pastor Robert Crowley was my pastor? 
Well, we are to disciple all nations, and we're to be teaching them. And I do want to mention William Carey and Ole B, because we're almost out of time. But before I mention them as an example of blending the Great Commission with the Genesis Mandate, I do want to give a little extra bit of my morning message that I didn't have a chance to mention. Because I had mentioned this fellow, Mitsuo Fuchida, and what did he do? What was he famous for? World War II. World War II. He's the one who led the attack at Pearl Harbor. After Japan lost the war, Mitsuo Fuchida read a gospel tract authored by Jake DeShazer, an American bombardier who was captured after a Tokyo bombing raid and was tortured by the Japanese as a prisoner of war. Amazed at Jake DeShazer's Christian testimony, Mitsuo Fuchida bought and read a Bible, read the Bible. On April 14, 1950, even more amazed at Jesus Christ, Fuchida decided to believe in Christ as his own personal Savior. I've read that a lot of times, and it, <clears throat> it still amazes me. Um, World War II, I'm sure, has a lot of connections with a lot of us here in this room. Uh, my father was in the U.S. Marines. They were preparing to send him as part of a D-Day-like invasion of the main island of Japan. And his particular unit of the Marines were given uh, in, uh, mar- uh, an assignment that to do this and then do that and then do that. And it was only so many weeks into the future. And I learned later that they were given no other instructions on what to do after that because no one could imagine that any of them would still be alive at that point. Uh, anyway, World War II is an example of, of a turbulent time in world history in which many of our family lines had a direct connection of one or another. And for some of us, it made the difference in whether we even uh, would arrive on this planet. Uh, so God was at work in many providential ways in World War II, but who would have thought that the one who led the Pearl Harbor bombing would become a Christian? Later, Fuchida and DeShazer, that's the one who wrote the track, who had been tortured as a POW, became friends and traveled together as Christian brothers, demonstrating the importance of staying on track and proclaiming the truth, speaking the truth in love. Um, now we'll think about William Carey and Ole B. How many here know who William Carey is? I bet quite a few. How many of you have heard of Ole B? Not so much. Okay. Uh, Believers are commanded to share the gospel, but sometimes face political obstacles when they try to earnestly contend for the faith. In the early 1800s, missionary William Carey, the father of modern missions, began evangelizing India's prodigious population. Despite heroic efforts, his work was frustrated by colonial politics. British colonial policy forbade introducing any activity that disturbed local customs and his translating of the Holy Bible into Hindi was already aggravating some indigenous customs. Carey's Great Commission work was being derailed in the name of social and economic stability. One local Hindu convention 
was the horrid practice of burning widows alive at the funeral uh, events of their husbands who died. Uh, so the the widows would be drugged and immobilized, you know, be, be tied down onto their f- husbands' funeral pyres. So when they would light a fire on the dead body of the husband, his widow was burned to death at that time as part of that fire. This widow killing, called Sati, was an unquenchable grief to William Carey and his friends, as was his frustration year after year at failing to effectively evangelize Hindu Indians. The dreadful widow-burning custom was essentially a culturally imposed violation of the Genesis mandate. God's command in Genesis 9, 1 through 7 to Noah and his family after they left the ark was a new mandate to populate the earth and treat innocent human life as sacred. Not only was killing the widows clearly murder, uh, you could call it assisted suicide, but it was not voluntary. It also prevented those same widows from remarrying and obeying the post-flood command to be fruitful and multiply. Carrie needed a political breakthrough, and it occurred through the hand of a government official, a Danish colonial governor named Ole B., who was born in Norway, but at that time Norway was owned by Denmark, not Sweden this time. Uh, Danish-Norwegian civil rights activist Colonel Ole B., who was a Lutheran, was a very very active Bible-believing evangelistic Lutheran, I might add, an active coalition partner of England's William Carey and a few others in the successful lobbying of Indians' traditional and colonial laws to to now prohibit the widow-burning practice of sete, a political blessing to countless women of India, not to mention all descendants of their future children who were born after they, as surviving widows, remarried. Colonel B. was a compassionate Lutheran Christian who valued the groundbreaking evangelistic work and Bible translation work that Carey and his American Baptist allies strove to accomplish in India. How did Ole B. defend the faith and further the Great Commission? He gave Carey political asylum in the Danish trade colony of Serampore, which is a little teeny colony compared to this huge territory that Britain had. Uh, basically, what, what Bai did was he said, I'm going to hire you as the gardener for our, um, for our trade colony compound. And probably, depending on how much of a perfectionist you are, you could probably get the gardening work done in a few hours each week. Wow, that'd leave you a lot of free time to do your Bible translation work. But because you'd be an official employee of the Danish colony, we could give you a Danish passport. And that way you could go anywhere around here and the British couldn't stop you. Because you have, uh, you know, the the uh, credentials of the Danish crown as as part of the, uh, the you know the diplomat's privileges. So he provided financial support to carry from his governmental resources by employing him as the governor's gardener and gave him diplomat-like passport privileges. Carey's Danish employee status protected him from British government persecutions, and this enabled Carey to complete his pioneering. Bible translations to teach native children Christianity and even to establish Serampore College in 1818, which still continues to this day. Finally, after many years of tireless political lobbying by Carey, By, and others, 
the British government banned the widow-burning custom of seti, a huge blessing to India's posterity, especially for all descendants of the surviving widows who later remarried and had children. As Is Oli B. famous as a big player in world politics? No. Or as a public servant of India? No. But like Nehemiah, Colonel B. performed an important work by defending the faith thoughtfully and persistently. Surely the archives of eternity will prove that the cause and effect chain of dominoes set in motion by Colonel B.'s activism in the little Danish colony of Serampore greatly advanced both the Genesis Mandate and the Great Commission. Sometimes those who earnestly contend for the faith need some political help. William Carey's and Ole B.'s work provides a perfect example of contending earnestly for the faith while promoting Genesis Mandate values. And speaking of Nehemiah, um, Nehemiah used technology too. Since we're thinking about how the railroads were technology for um, uh, for uh, Sheldon Jackson and how you know we harness the technology available to us to carry out the ministries God given us. Well, let, let's look at Nehemiah, whose job was to teach the Bible. And we look in Nehemiah chapter 8, starting at verse 2. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men and women and all who could hear with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. Then he read from it in the open square that was in front of the water gate. This is not the Nixon thing. The, oh, I never... I wish I'd never heard of that word, Watergate. Okay. Some of you are old enough know what I'm talking about. Uh, but this was a different Watergate. From morning unto midday, before the men and women and those who could understand, and in the ears of all the people who are attentive to the word of the Lord. Here's the technology part. So Ezra the scribe stood on a platform of wood, which they had made for that purpose. So in order for his voice to be heard among this large crowd that was assembled, standing there to hear him teach the Bible, he had a team uh, that he he had uh, those who were helping him to communicate, to deliver his message, and the need was to have a wooden platform so that the acoustics were better for projecting out his message. And when you think about it, you know, this thing is kind of like a... It reminds me of, you know, when you're vacuuming and you've got to keep track of the cords so you don't trip on it. But this technology is wonderful. And the, the, the Internet, the ability to communicate uh, electronically, the, the devices that we have nowadays that can be harnessed for the use of God's ministry, it's amazing. And we do need to take advantage and be good stewards of whatever technology is available to us what we have, uh, I mean, Nehemiah couldn't have imagined the technology that we use for, for teaching the word. But the Great Commission is there, and we each are assigned different parts in it. And we'll return to this uh, very basic uh, set of principles that, that we've looked at before. It's all about grace, God's grace. We need God to graciously create us, or we just don't get here. We need God to graciously save us from sin in Christ as our Redeemer, or we don't get saved. And we need God to graciously give us the truth that we have in the book that he's given us, and that is pure grace that he gave it to us. If he didn't give it to us, we just wouldn't know that truth. 
So we can thank God for, for all that he has done, and he is very gracious. And let me say a word of prayer. Lord, thank you for giving us the opportunity to participate in the adventurous of this life that you have given us, that we can be involved in family life, and that there's it's so much more complicated than we ever thought it was. You are so glorious in how you have providentially worked in all these generations. And you have assigned to us roles within the Great Commission to share the good news of your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, to uh, people who are locally near us as well as people who are far away from us, even people on the other side of the world. And you've given us technology that we now must be good stewards of, and we need your guidance to know how to use it aright so that you are honored and people are blessed. We thank you for this this challenge that you've given to us. We thank you that your Holy Spirit will guide us to do our part in it. We thank you for this conference where we can be challenged to to live for you and and to do it uh, as part of this wonderful work that you have in this dispensation that you have chosen to put us in the church age uh, for such a time as this. We just thank you for being our God and all of the grace that goes with it. In Jesus' name. Amen. There are a couple of questions that came in. Answered. One of them was uh, that our evolution challengers talk about symbiotic relationships as if the change in terminology changes the cooperative affiliations of creation. Can you comment on that? Is that, can you hear me now? Um, it reminds me of how what used to be called global warming, when things kept getting colder, they changed the phrase to climate change. That way, no matter what way the climate is changing, they say, aha, see, we were right. And uh, what they really meant was global warming, but they had to pick a, a more general phrase that was fuzzier so you couldn't pin them down. It's the same kind of thing with symbiotic relationships. Well, symbiotic, I mean, you think of the two Greek words. You know, one means together and the other means um, uh, biologically alive as opposed to zoe, which is, uh, you know, not, not as physical in its connotation. But when you think of biologically living things that are living together, well, literally a symbiotic relationship is any interaction between the two. Now, it could be a friendly interaction like the yucca moth pollinating the yucca uh, flower and how they both benefit from that pollination process. That's a, that's a mutual aid or a neighborly relationship. But you could also have a host and parasite or predator and prey. Well, all of those are living together. And, of course, since the food web is not a food chain where you have someone at the top and then the next one, the next one, the next one, because the one at the top eventually dies, and then the worms and the bacteria and all the, the trash eaters, the garbage eaters, um, get to be on top of the, the food pile at that point. Um, so sometimes they will take a fuzzy phrase and then say, see, we've got that, see, we've got that, you know, see, we see change. Yeah, it's all about change. Well, th that's such a vague term that it really distracts from learning the details of what is it that's going on. 
that is so complicated, so well designed, that it it demonstrates God's design and God's building things together so that they operate right. They'll pick a a vague term, and in the process, what they'll do is they'll dumb down what's really going on, and it makes the whole situation looks simpler than what it really is. They'll say something like, spiders build webs and bugs go into webs and that's how it works. Well, not so fast. Some spiders actually build a little web that kind of goes underground and as a bug climbs up that part of the web that's on above ground, they'll go up there, they'll stab through, they'll drag the bug, pull him down. I mean, some of it's a whole lot more complicated than what you think. So anytime when when someone is trying to use wording that makes it sound simple, you're being lied to. You think that really happened? <laughs> well, that's what, that's what Mrs. Thelma Bumgarner told me in second grade when we looked at pages 12 and 13. is like think, they're lying I, I, to you. I think she was pretty, probably pretty smart. Not, maybe she, not as smart as wonderful. my second grade teacher. Well, But I just say that because my second grade teacher is still alive and she's listening. Oh, right. <laughs> Yeah, Mrs. Bumgarner's in heaven. I bet she's listening too. <laughs> All right, any other questions? None? None? Well, I, I thank you, Dr. Johnson. It's great to have you here. And um, for those of you, thank you. yes, thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Thank Appreciate you. Appreciate it. For those of you who are, um, uh, who join me on, I have a Friday morning Zoom meeting from 8.30 until 10. And at that Zoom meeting, we have uh, Pat's on there. We have a number of students and also professors uh, at Chafer. And we have uh, pastors. We have uh, this last week, we had 35, 36 from, uh, we have them from Indonesia and from Sweden and from England and from all over the country. And we discuss a lot of different things, and we've been discussing something recently related to issues between the Masoretic Text and the Septuagint, and it turns out that um, Dr. Johnson has uh, participated in some studies on this and whatever, so we're going to have him join us on a Friday morning as we go through this material to give us some insights from a different perspective, okay? So it's important. A lot of this is new to most of us. And it's a lot of areas to cover, and so it gives us an opportunity to really hear some different sides to this issue and try to work our way through it. So that's uh, we're looking forward to that. So thank you very, very much. We're going to close out the uh, Chafer Conference now with hymn number 52, O God, Our Help in Ages Past. Let's stand together and sing hymn number... Uh, hymn number 52, and then I'm going to ask Pastor David Roseland to come up and dismiss us in closing prayer. Well, let's close in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the privilege always of being in Christ, our position in Christ, which is the reason we have come together ultimately. But Father, we also thank you more specifically for the privilege of being part of Chafer Theological Seminary and joining together this way with these dear ones here in person and across the miles online, that we could join together and fellowship in these wonderful truths that we celebrated and that we always celebrate. Father, it's home uh, to us so much that we can be together this way. It's a taste of what's coming for us in eternity, we know. 
that not only will we go to heaven where Jesus is preparing a place for us, but we'll come back with him to reward him in his kingdom. And Father, we glorify you and praise you for such an amazing destiny for such wretches as we ourselves are. And Father, I ask your blessing on Chafer Seminary, on the efforts of all those involved, Father, on our students, on our faculty, on their churches, on the pastors uh, where these uh, students are participating in classes. Father, for the entire enterprise, it is your grace to us from beginning to end. God, glorify yourself through it, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.